just wanted to introduce Usha initially by saying um, some of you will already know Usha's presentations from a number of sessions at Philosophy Matters in the past few months, which covered a range of really important topics in philosophy. Um, Usha has given us the benefit of her reading of Aristotelian ethics, her uh, in-depth knowledge of neuroethics, and has also uh, co-presented with someone a, a session on reality on screen. And some of that may in some way relate to uh, today's topic about the matrix. So I'll just run through for the benefit of, you know, people to remind you of the, the, the coverage of the session and then also uh, introduce uh, Usha in terms of her particular background. So in this two-part session, today being part one, Usha's sister will explore an iconic movie trilogy of our generation, The Matrix. The Matrix juxtaposes and synthesizes storytelling, philosophy, and cognitive science through the cinematic medium. She will examine some of the philosophical underpinnings of the trilogy. In this first session tonight, Usha will look at The Matrix through the lens of classical philosophers such as Descartes, Plato, Socrates, and others. Usher is looking forward to, I can see on the screen, Usher is looking forward to examining the trilogy and philosophy in conjunction with all of you participants here tonight. Um, but about Usher, Usher's sister is a learning and development professional. She has a PhD in cognitive neuroscience and a master's in English, as well as molecular bio biotechnology. Some of her key areas of interest are neurobiology of well-being and the behavioral and neurobiological underpinnings of deviant behavior. She is a voracious reader and also paints and dabbles with photography and filmmaking. Usher is contemplating on establishing a literary magazine and we're delighted to have Usher with us tonight. I will hand over the microphone and look forward to hearing from everybody else with questions afterwards. Usher, please enlighten us about the matrix <laughs> and philosophy. <laughs> I wish, I wish. Thank you. Thanks, Akiva. Thanks, Les. And uh, delighted to be seeing so many of you, many of you from, uh, I know from the previous sessions here and some perhaps new. Um, the, the Matrix Trilogy is something that we've discussed and thought about for a very long time and has come up in multiple conversations here. And so I thought, Maybe we could look at a little bit of it a little more deeply. So we will be looking at some of the philosophical elements that I found interesting with respect to the trilogy. Uh, some slightly familiar, maybe some I hope will be slightly new, but let's let's see. Um, okay, I thought I'd start with a very quick recap of uh, the trilogy, which it's not original. I didn't write this stuff. I can give you the source for this recap sometime later, but uh, because it's a big, big trilogy and we're expecting the fourth movie as well, just for, uh, for someone who hasn't seen it recently. So this is how it goes. I'm gonna go through it really quickly though. Humans create artificial intelligence. AI rebel and a war for survival between humans and AI begins. Humans pollute the skies to block the sunshine, that is the energy source of the AI. AI then learns how to harvest energy from humans. AI wins the war, humans are defeated totally. 
then AI learns that for the matrix to work, it cannot be a blissful paradise. So humans need conflict to accept virtual reality in the long run blindly. And then AI also learns that the yearning for freedom lies deep within us and cannot be deprogrammed or suppressed, which is why they accept certain humans to disconnect and escape the system, which turns out to be a design flaw in the matrix. Now, the matrix in its optimal form must be an imperfect world like our real world, and it must be a system that allows for a certain percentage of those who are connected to the matrix to rebel and escape. Now, to control this tendency towards rebellion and freedom, the AI creates a city called Zion outside of the matrix deep underground to house those escaping. So the chosen one is also created and that'll help people in Zion to get free and they establish themselves as an independent entity. This movement is allowed to grow to a certain degree, and then it's happened multiple times in the past, five times, apparently. And then we enter the actual story, which is where Neo comes in. Now, Neo is part of this fail-safe program. He doesn't know that. Only the architect character tells him how to set up a new Zion. Now, Oracle is tasked specifically to guide the humans and rebels towards this final solution every time they go through this cycle. So the Oracle is not an Oracle. She cannot see the future and she's a well-crafted program and has experienced this cycle every time from the beginning, which gives us the illusion that she can foresee things. Now everything goes planned according to what the AI wants until Neo's meeting with the architect. Now besides Neo, Smith is also different in this iteration of the matrix as Smith has become disconnected or a free virus. AI does not like what Smith has become, but doesn't know how to delete him. Neo then makes a deal with the AI to defeat Smith. Neo deletes Smith, and there is once again peace between humans and AI. That is the summary as I found it. Um, I understood some parts of it and agree with some, but I thought some of the interpretation was slightly different, but this is open for discussion if others have a different understanding of the Matrix Trilogy. Um, getting into the philosophical bit, some of the, I'll be looking largely at Descartes, a little bit of Plato, very little into the brain and the vat argument, which I'll explore in greater detail in part two. The philosophy of mind we'll go into later sections. Um, and we look at something that we have not seen much or heard much in our philosophy matters, at least since I've joined, which is um, the Oriental philosophies. In this case, I'm going to touch a little bit about uh, onto Advaita Vedanta, the, the concept of Maya or illusion, which the, the Hindu philosophy is not something that we've looked at much in philosophy matters. Matrix is based on a question posed by Descartes. And one of the most important of Descartes' thesis was that uh, of intellectual autonomy or the ability to think for oneself. So this does not mean just having a good mind, but also being able to applying it well. Now, the problem with this was that the sensory experiences do not always match reality. 
which uh, he explained using the wax argument, basically to show, demonstrate how unreliable the senses are. The senses inform us that a piece of wax has a specific shape, texture, smell, etc. But these characteristics soon change when it's brought near a flame. So how reliable are our senses? Descartes said that everything I have accepted up to now as being absolutely true and assured, I have learned from or through the senses. But I have sometimes found that these senses played me false. It is prudent never to trust entirely those ones who have deceived us. Thus, what I thought I had seen with my eyes, I actually grasped solely with the faculty of judgment, which is in my mind. This is one of the defining, um, one of the decisive uh, statements based on which uh, the Wachowski brothers, now the Wachowski sisters, started uh, making this film about. Now, to continue with uh, Descartes' suspicion of his senses, of his percepts, which is basically the knowledge that we obtain through the senses and the beliefs that follow those uh, knowledge, uh, the, the percepts, one must use one's mind rather than one's senses. So this is what Descartes says, to obtain information about the world. Now, in his system of knowledge, perception is also unreliable as a means of gathering information. And for Descartes, the mental process of deduction is the only way to acquire real knowledge of the world. So in, in his first philosophies, he uh, expands this a little further, takes it to its extreme limit. We looked at, uh, we looked at this evil demon, demon a little bit when we spoke about the Truman Show where Christoph was, posited as an evil demon as well. Now, he says that firmly implanted in my mind is the long-standing opinion that there's an omnipotent God who made me the kind of creature I am. How do I know that he has not brought it about, that there is no whatever, whatever? What is more, just as I consider that others sometimes go astray in cases where they think they have most perfect knowledge, how do I know that God has not brought it about that I too go wrong every time I add two and three, right? But since he is said to be supremely good, I will suppose that some malicious demon of the utmost power and cunning has employed all his energies in order to deceive me. So in Descartes' case, we're, we've gone back or gone forward to the original dichotomy and the fight between God and this evil demon. And the evil demon is the one that strays us from um, knowing what is true, what is real, etc. And somehow our perceptions, our percepts and senses are swayed by the evil demon's influence. Now, a modern version of this is Hilary Putnam's version of one of the arguments about brain in the vat. And we're just gonna look at Hilary Putnam's version here, but there are very many variants of a brain in the vat argument, which we'll look at, as I said, in part two. Now this is Putnam's argument. So imagine that a human being has been subjected to an operation by scientists. The brain has been removed, placed in a vat. The nerve endings are connected to a computer which causes the person to have the illusion that everything is perfectly normal. 
Putnam is describing what it is to live in the matrix. Uh, and, and in one of the interviews, the Wachowski sisters also referred to this particular version of uh, the brain and the VAT argument as having influenced their thinking about uh, the movies. They seem to be people, objects, the sky, etc. But really, all the person is experiencing is the result of electronic impulses traveling from the computer to the nerve endings. The computer is so clever that if the person tries to raise his hand, the feedback will cause him to feel and see the hand being raised. Moreover, by varying the program, the evil scientist can cause the victim to experience or hallucinate any situation or environment that the scientist wishes. He can also obliterate the memory of the brain operation so that the victim will seem to himself have always been in this environment. Now, the victim can feel that, uh, you know, he's sitting and reading these words about the amusing but the absurd proposition that there is an evil scientist that removes people's brains and places them in a vat. This is pretty much the argument in the situation that is taken to its complete cinematic extreme in, in the Matrix trilogy, which brings us to exactly the questions that we were raising at the beginning. How do we know if something doesn't leave a trace of any form, not a memory trace, not an experiential trace, not a physical trace, then did it exist at all? And that's, so if, if the, the, the memory of the brain operation is obliterated completely, then did the operation happen? This is something like if a tree falls in a forest and there's nobody to hear it, did the tree actually, did it even make a sound? Did it fall without a consciousness to, without a conscious being to gather this information and to report it internally without an internal representation of that information. And, and then further an expression and a conversation about that information manifested in any number of ways, did it even exist? Um, that, that question is where the matrix essentially comes in. So, how do you know that the matrix exists? How, do, how come people are not aware of the fact that they are living, living in a matrix? Um, this, this particular question has been, of course, looked at in, well, all of philosophy largely, of course, and neuroscience constantly asks this question and tries to examine it scientifically. But, Matrix, I think, took it to its philosophical extreme. I think the only movie that tried to, in the recent times, do it, um, and I, my personal opinion is it failed. It would still be subservient to Matrix's Inception. In Inception, we go into the dream world as a nested hierarchy of a dream within a dream within a dream, and that is the reality. So some argument around when the movie had uh, come out was, uh, Inception is what Matrix could have been. I think Inception has failed Matrix, but that's a different argument. Now, the, as I said, the brain and the vat is more directly related, 
The pods in which humans spend their lives represent the vat. Instead of just containing the disembodied brains in this case, the pods contain the entire body. Because partly what the movie is doing is building on what was really becoming an emerging discipline in neuroscience and philosophy of mind, which is your embodied cognition and extended cognition. Both of them were coming at forefront in neuroscience and philosophy in um, mid 90s to, yeah, in, in the 1990s really with Andy Clark's uh, studies in, uh, with William Bechtel's studies. I'll, I'll give references to all this later if, if you want to follow up. Um, so looking at how the mind is not, well, the, many would anyway saying that the mind is not restricted to the brain, but the mind, the, the consciousness is embodied in your body and it can extend to objects that we interact with routinely, which is partly what, it's, it's not entirely wrong, which is partly what we see. You know, we carry our phones with us all the time. And you, know, you forget the phone at home one day. We're so used to this phone being a part of our hands or part of our conversation, our work, that we start missing having the phone. And in a similar way, we have the phantom limb phenomenon. So your, you know, your arm or leg is amputated. You can go on for a very long time and some people, as long as they're alive, that their limb is still there. The phantom limb still itches. They experience pain in that phantom limb. And one of the ways in which they've tried to help these people uh, who suffer phantom pain in their amputated limbs is by giving them a rubber hand illusion. So one of course is by having a mirror placed on the side so that every time the idea comes to them that their limb is itching, they can immediately look and see that there is no limb. So they're retraining their brain, their mind, their thoughts to basically match the new reality. But the idea is here that the nerve endings contain memory traces of the extended limb that they used to be connected to. So the cognition and consciousness and the mind is not restricted to just this, which is why in the movie, you are looking at a whole body. Now in theory, computers can simulate reality if uh, sensory stimuli corresponding to human experience can be determined and executed as a program. But in practice, even if the exact computations required to generate this kind of uh, simulated stream of consciousness can be determined, as of now, there is no computer yet that's, that's powerful enough to perform all the necessary calculations that can simulate reality. Now, if, if someone's read uh, Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy, uh, there's much more than a trilogy, I think five books now, the Foundation series of books. So uh, there, um, Harry Seldon is asked to predict the future using mathematics uh, as Asimov often does. And he says he can do it provided there is no scientific growth and development. He can predict what he can 
simulate and predict what can happen in the pro future provided there is no change, there is no growth. So basically you're looking at a constant, which is pretty much the only way you can predict or simulate a reality, which is really not gonna happen, I think. So, and, and one of the ways for us to understand that it's, it's really a complicated issue that you cannot immediately simulate reality or even know what reality is by studying the opposite, which is basically illusions. Now, uh, the notion that uh, all our perceptions are false, it's, it's, not, it's, it's impossible to disprove. Yes, some of them can be true, but a lot of them are, are really representational. And if the representation is wrong, then it can go or awry with the reality. And optical illusions are a good uh, example of this discrepancy between stimuli, basically that produce uh, the discrepancy between what we see and what we experience, apart from various other psychiatric conditions where you have visual or auditory hallucinations or combination. But in the case of illusions, we are aware of the discrepancy, mostly, uh, but we do not question our senses. So, because reality as we know it is, is really a representational model of the world. It's a construct generated by multiple neural circuits that are acting in parallel. And this is based on the sensory experiences and then which are received by the brain and uh, processed further but then the the range of the, the processing in the brain is quite good but the range of stimuli that the brain receives is very narrow for example uh, the very common example is that the human eye is sensitive to electromagnetic radiation which is between the wavelength of 400 to 700 nanometers which is basically a visible light spectrum anything beyond that or below that the human eye cannot detect, but that's that's just an infinitesimal fraction of the entire uh, spectrum of electromagnetic um, radiations. Visible light is also an electromagnetic radiation, right? So even if the brain has the neural capacity, the processing capacity to um, represent a more accurate reality or an, a, a more accurate model of the world, the stimuli are really, really not doing their job. I mean, the human stimuli are very, very narrow. This is the only Plato segue over here. Uh, I really didn't want to do uh, another uh, example of uh, allegory of the caves over here, but I cannot miss the allegory of the caves either because Plato was another guy who really, really hit it right. So this is... Um, human beings living underground in a cave-like dwelling with an entrance a long way up, which is open to light and it's as wide as the cave. Now, because they have been there since childhood, these human beings, their necks and, their necks and legs feathered, able to see, they can only see what's in front of them because their bonds prevent them from turning their heads around. They can't look back. Light is provided by fire burning above and behind them. But on higher ground, there's a path stretching between them and the fire. 
And then this fire is causing projections on the wall. Now, what are these people who are living underground and trapped, half fettered, who cannot turn their head around? What is their perception of reality? Their reality is only the shadows that they can see and only the tunnel vision, which is basically what they can see right ahead of them. Doesn't mean that there is no reality beyond or beneath or behind them, but the, the conditioning as well as the, the, the narrow stimuli is going to limit what their representation of reality is. I'm going to segue from the Western tradition into the Eastern Oriental concept of Maya, which is similar to um, an illusion, which is similar to as well what Plato was suggesting in his allegory of the cave. But in, in Vedanta, Maya is slightly more than a magical illusion. It is also a spiritual concept, which connotes that um, everything exists, but constantly changing and therefore spiritually unreal. So that also conceals the true character of spiritual reality. So in Vedanta, anything that changes is not real. So only what is permanent and unchanging is real. And the world, the, as we see it, as we know it, as we experience it is Maya, which is basically the powerful force that creates the cosmic illusion that the phenomenal world, that the world of objects and interactions, which includes us and our interactions is real. And the goal of all spiritual undertaking and philosophy, according to Advaita Vedanta, is that you transcend this cosmic illusion, you transcend the phenomenal world, and you look at the world for what it is, which is the unchanging oversoul. The goal of all philosophy, all um, seeking, according to the Hindu tradition or the Vedanta, is to go to the oversoul, the Atma or the Brahman that is beyond the phenomenal world, that is beyond the Maya. And the story is also, I mean, because the the, the, the storytelling is such an important tradition, according to the, the Hindu Vedanta, the Vedas and the philosophy there, the world is, if you've heard of Lord Vishnu, so, I, if you, so the Hindu trinity, the big trinity here is Brahma, who is the creator, Vishnu, who is the sustainer of this world, who maintains everything in it, and Shiva, who is the destroyer. So basically the end came, the, the Armageddon comes through Shiva. Now the world, according to Vedanta or the Vedas, is a dream of Vishnu. So he keeps dreaming up these worlds and that's the world we keep living in. So it is a projection of Vishnu's dreams. So there are two, uh, two ways of thinking. It's, it's Vishnu's simulated reality, which is why we shouldn't take anything in life too seriously. And it's anyway an illusion. All you need to know is Vishnu himself. So it's, it's not entirely of um, 
what any of the philosophies or any of the scientific traditions are trying to say here, it's, except that it's just in this narrative storytelling tradition. Um, I had some images here about this misrepresentation or rather the impossible paintings of uh, M.C. Escher, a Dutch visual realist. Uh, this is his waterfall. Um, these are the impossible worlds of M.C. Escher day and night and they've been used frequently and uh, quite often in many uh, experiments as well um, so i thought i'd segue a bit into what the vedic philosophies have to say about it so the world the wise behold with their mind in their heart the sun so the sun itself is made manifest by the illusion of a demon, uh, which I think refers to something that David Miller mentioned in one of the comments uh, about the world being created by the Acherons of the Greek, uh, believing that the world is a projection of an evil demon's dream. So it's, there's a very similar tradition in, in the Vedas as well. And uh, so the soul is imagined first, and then the particularity of the objects come, then the internal and the external, as no one, as one knows, so remembers. So this, this misrepresentation, you look at a rope, not perceived distinctly in the dark, and you imagine that it's a snake, or you think it's a streak of water, and the soul is also erroneously imagined. And when all living beings as diverse objects appear to us as diverse objects, then it is all Maya. So looking at distinctions in creation is an illusion. It's all just part of one cosmic illusion as a cosmic dream. And uh, while that's not exactly what happens in the matrix, but the, the idea of it all being a dream delusion does come from here as well. Um, and the way out is that you remove the dirt, you keep, um, you keep thinking about how everything is an illusion and then you start seeing objects for what they are. And in this case, Maya is ignorance, and which is basically when you have the knowledge, when the ignorance is dispelled, then you know what the truth is. This is akin to what Morpheus says to um, uh, Neo at the beginning as well. He can only show what the doors are. The Neo has to take the step. He has to open the door. He has to open the door to his own, um, Light and knowledge, that's what he has to take. He has to meet the oracle, regardless of whether the oracle was uh, a tool of the matrix or not. That's the way to truth. That's the way to Neo's truth. And he has to find that out himself. Cannot be done by anyone else. So thank you. Thank you, Asha. That was fascinating. and. Uh... Applause from far and wide. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions uh, before we move to questions. I'd just like to, on everyone's behalf, thank the speaker, Usha, for uh, all the preparation and uh, the breadth of ideas there to uh, reflect on uh, what the matrix uh, 
tries to uh, explore and does it very well. A philosophical masterpiece, one of the, the great philosophical films and indeed series of all time. So thank you for presenting it to us. To access other videos and podcasts in this series, go to the Philosophy Resources section of the Rational Realm website at www.rationalrealm.com. Thank you.